Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and we have two special guests with us to address a very interesting and promising topic, specifically that of the Artificial Heart Program. And this particular occasion is the month where the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is celebrating the 25th anniversary of the first artificial heart implant at the hospital. With us today is Dr. Harvey Borovitz. Uh, Dr. Borovitz is chairman of the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh and truly one of the world's pioneers in terms of mechanical circulatory devices. Dr. Borovitz did do a podcast, number 18, in fact, in September of 2006, and uh, I'll ask him to uh, share some of his insights in a moment. Also with us today is Brian Williams. Brian joins us by telephone from Durham, North Carolina. Brian is a beneficiary of some of these technologies, and we'll talk a little bit more about Brian's experience shortly. So, Dr. Borovitz, would you be kind enough to perhaps give us a brief synopsis of 25 years of artificial heart technology and heart transplantation? Thanks, Professor Murphy. Of course, this is quite a, a week of reminiscing for me because I do remember so much of uh, this very special implant that occurred 25 years ago this week, actually, and it involves a patient, Tom Gatish was his name, and the need for using a mechanical blood pump to support Mr. Gatish until a donor heart or could be found. And a decision was made the year before that uh, the University of Pittsburgh Department of Surgery, under the leadership of Dr. Bartley Griffith, would indeed become a center for the use of mechanical circulatory support. In those days, the technology was called the Jarvis Artificial Heart. And so a number of us had trained on this technology in Salt Lake City, Utah, where it was invented. And we were kind of ready to go and just awaiting our first patient. To put the time frame in perspective, in October of 1985, Dr. Robert Cormos, who's now the director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program, uh, back then was a, a new fellow in Dr. Griffith's program, recently arrived from Toronto. Dr. Jim Antaki, the expert who has designed so much of the current technology that's under clinical evaluation, Dr. Antaki was barely one month into his graduate program at the University of Pittsburgh. So it was a different time, that's for sure, but as I found out in the exchange of emails we had this past week celebrating this 25th anniversary, the patient, Mr. Gatish, was deteriorating rapidly, and, and Dr. Griffith was at a conference in Indianapolis, and the chief cardiac resident in those days, his name is Dr. Alfredo Trento, who is now chief of cardiac surgery at Cedar sinai Hospital in, in Los Angeles, UCLA, contacted Bart, and Bart, Dr. Griffith had to literally take a private jet back to Pittsburgh to rush to the operating room to implant the artificial heart into Mr. Gatish. But what an amazing story that was, just doing the implant. There was a guard, literally a guard, sitting in front of the operating room, so you had to walk past the guard. The operating room was teeming with people. And, uh, of course, Dr. Griffith and Dr. Robert Hardesty who was also there, of course, they were calm, cool, and nothing bothered them. Me, on the other hand, I might have looked calm and cool on the outside, but my insides were a tsunami 
and that's probably uh, being generous about it. But as all wonderful stories go, Dr. Griffith did the implant, overcame whatever complications of the operation needed to be resolved. And I spent my first weekend in an intensive care unit where I learned very firsthand just how incredibly hard the ICU nurses work. Uh, I was exhausted and I was slumped into a nice chair that they found for me. And meanwhile, the ICU nurses never stopped working all night. It was unbelievable how hard they worked. And I've, I've taken that image with me all these years later. The wonderful story was that uh, a few days later, a donor heart was found for Mr. Gator. She was successfully transplanted. He was the first recipient of an artificial heart to be successfully transplanted. He, he lived another nine years post-transplant. We have met his family, Mr. Gator's family. We saw them at a recent gathering, and we promised to meet again, and hopefully we will, and, and just reminisce that wonderful time. So that's how we began. 25 years ago, an amazing, an amazing week, a wonderful man, Mr. Gatish, a tremendous family that supported uh, Mr. Gatish, and, and I think that's really one of the messages of this technology, how critically important it is to have a supportive family, um, a caring family to help the patients who face so many challenges, obviously, if you require such a device. So off we started in 1985. And Dr. Griffith and Dr. Cormos, as he was becoming more established in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Hardesty and Dr. Antaki with all his brilliance, we were moving forward, doing more patients. We did, uh, I think, over 20 total artificial heart patients. And then in 1987, we were introduced to the technology called the Novacore Left Ventricular Assist System, LVAS, by a wonderful physicist, actually, a nuclear physicist who was an inventor of this technology by the name of Dr. Pierre Portner. And Dr. Pierre Portner came back to Pittsburgh and spoke to Dr. Griffith and Dr. Henry Bonson, the chairman of surgery in those days. And off we went to to learn how to use the Novacore left ventricular assist system and implanted our first patient with that device on July 2nd, uh, 1987. And that was the first of of many, many patients over the decades, including the guest speaker uh, for today, Mr. Brian Williams. And it took me a while to understand, but I still don't understand very well, the insidious nature of heart disease. I thought that heart disease only afflicted people my age or older, and it was a disease of grandma and grandpa, these sorts of things. But I quickly learned as we became more and more involved in the mechanical circulatory support program that heart disease strikes everyone of all ages. You don't have to be a senior citizen. You can be a very young man. And this was the circumstance with uh, our guest speaker, Mr. Brian Williams, active, extremely bright, energetic young man with a wonderful family, nonetheless wound up at the University of Pittsburgh in need of serious support for a failing heart. And so this is where we first met Brian. And really, in many ways, Brian's story is an odyssey. It's an odyssey of how a single young man can overcome so many obstacles throughout a lifetime and achieve so much. It's just an incredible story at that level. It's an incredible story in terms of Brian being a pioneer 
um, as Brian will tell you in his discussion point, Brian was the first patient to be formally discharged with approval from a hospital with an implanted mechanical blood pump. So Brian was the first patient to actually leave the hospital and, and reside at Family House down the street from our hospital, maybe six blocks, with his wonderful family. It's a story that, that talks about friendships because at our university we have a cadre of, of wonderful engineers who are exceptional engineers and even better people. And these people befriended Brian, and they're still extremely close friends today. And it's a story of how people bonded together, how even in the darkest times of, of fighting so many aspects of this terrible disease, there was always Brian's family and always the engineers there to be hopefully a source of strength and support to Brian. So on so many levels, Brian is a pioneer his story is truly an odyssey, and I've said too much, so I want to leave all the time now for Brian to try to tell the story from his perspective, because that's the only perspective that counts. Well, thank you, Dr. Borovitz. As a way of introduction, and as I understand it, Brian, it was in 1990 when you were 15 years old that you received your ventricular assist device, and if I recall correctly, it was 121 days on the ventricular assist device before you received your heart transplant. That's correct, and I'll, I'll back up just a little bit from there and just briefly tell you sort of how all of this started when my heart became really ill, actually in, in 1989, before I arrived in Pittsburgh. I was diagnosed uh, actually in infancy with cardiomyopathy. My pediatric cardiologist always said it was to the credit of my pediatrician that he even caught the very, very slight difference in my heartbeat, and so... At, I think, four or six months of age, my parents took me to the Medical College of Georgia. I was born in Augusta, Georgia, and grew up in Augusta. And although I had this, this diagnosis, uh, from my perspective, I, I never knew it. I felt perfectly normal, had a normal childhood, did what I wanted, was active in sports and other activities. Um, and every three years, I would go see my pediatric cardiologist at the Medical College of Georgia for a checkup. And I think until I became sick, actually at 14 years of age, he believed and sincerely hoped that I would outgrow this issue, that my body had been able to compensate for the weakness in my heart and that ultimately it would not cause me any problems. That was his hope. And that was the life I lived up until I was about 14 and a half years old. And very suddenly, one weekend, I developed flu-like symptoms. And that's what we all thought I had. It, it never crossed any of our minds, uh, my parents or myself, that this was an issue with my heart. We just, it was October. We felt like I was getting the flu or, or getting a cold. I uh, went to the doctor, and he sent me to my pediatric cardiologist, and that's when we found out that I had fallen into heart failure. And so this was October of 1989, and about every month I was hospitalized for the rest of 1989 and in early 1990, sort of increasingly getting worse. More medicines were used to support me, 
and we eventually started having discussions of what the next steps were and the fact that it was very possible that I may need a heart transplant. And I was fortunate enough to have a family that had always acted to make sure that I had health insurance and that that we had a place for me to go. And so we were able to ask my pediatric cardiologist then, if you could go to the best place in the world, where would we go? And very quickly, he said Pittsburgh. So we uh, contacted that time Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh because I was 14 years old and had arranged for me to have sort of an assessment to see if, if I'm a candidate for a heart transplant. And that was due to happen the first week in April of 1990. And the week before I was supposed to go to Pittsburgh, I took a turn for the worse, ended up in the ICU um, at the Medical College of Georgia. And Pittsburgh actually had to send a plane down, a life flight plane, to transport me from the Medical College of Georgia to Children's. And for about three weeks, I was in the ICU in Children's. And again, sort of each week slowly getting worse. And I met Dr. Jay Fricker, was my transplant cardiologist at the time, and he worked very closely with Dr. John Armitage, who was a partner with Dr. Cormos and Dr. Griffith. And so ultimately, when we felt like it was a good possibility that I may need to have an artificial heart, we transferred my care from Children's to Presby. And my birthday in 1990 was on a Saturday, turned 15 years old that Saturday, and the very next Saturday is when I had the Novacor implanted. And from my perspective, incredibly weak, I was incredibly sick, although we had had a lot of discussions, a lot of information from so many people about what the Novacor was and, and how it was going to be. I really did not fully understand it, obviously, until I had the surgery. The surgery was planned to take place on a Tuesday, and Dr. Armitage had always told me if I felt like there was any problem or if I didn't feel like my needs were being met, that I could always page him. And on the Saturday before that Tuesday, I just had this feeling that somehow or another I could not go on. And that's that's as simple as it was. I certainly didn't have some feeling that I was going to die. I wasn't thinking of it that way. I just felt like I was running out of steam, sort of if you've, if you've ever had a, a stress test or a treadmill. You know, once you get to the level where you feel like you've got to stop, you tell the team, okay, I need to stop, and, and then they stop. That, that's the best way I can describe the way I felt on that Saturday, that I, I just didn't, I didn't see how I could continue that way until Tuesday. And so after some convincing to page the attending cardiothoracic surgeon on a Saturday, the nurses did page Dr. Armitage. He came in and assessed me and very quickly called the team in to do the surgery on an emergency basis that Saturday. And I believe it was a week later that I actually woke up or became aware of of what had happened. And so that, that, I guess, takes us to early May of 1990. 
obviously, I think the first thing any patient that's on a Novacor or any LVAD is the vibration and the ticking that you feel of the pump because it is fully implanted. That took, for me, quite a while to get used to because I had deteriorated so much. I'd lost close to 60 pounds when I first got sick. And so I was about 115 pounds at that time and really was, I think, technically or practically too small for the pump. So what Dr. Armitage and Dr. Cormos had to do was manipulate my ribs to a certain degree. The last few ribs that you have are, are cartilage only. And so I had a tremendous amount of pain every time the pump vibrated, which was every time your heart beat. It was a very painful vibration that went, you know, all the way up and down my body. Brian, thank you uh, for this synopsis. And we also have the pleasure at this point to have Stephen Winowitz join us. Steve is the uh, Chief Operating Officer and Senior Biomedical Engineer with Vital Engineering. And Steve actually did a podcast with us, uh, number 49, back in March of 2008. I think Steve brings to this discussion and, of course, to this whole enterprise of supporting people on uh, circulatory devices, the technology and the skills that he and his team have that Dr. Borovitz made reference to earlier in terms of the collaboration between the biomedical engineers and the clinicians and the rest of the the clinical team. So, Steve, can you give us a bit of insight into how many of these ventricular assist devices have been implanted since the start of this program 25 years ago? Since 1985, following the first implant, we have now reached close to 700 patients, utilizing somewhere around 12 or 13 different types of technologies. If you add up the accumulative experience in, in patient years or patient days, it now exceeds 150 years. Fiscal year 2010, in fact, we had our most active year ever and approximately implanted 80 or 82 patients. So we've been one of the more active programs and one of the more aggressive programs in the country. Uh, Children's Hospital has participated with us, uh, Dr. Weird and Dr. Morrell and their team are now close to 30 patients, which globally is one of the largest experiences in pediatric mechanical cardiac support. Brian was one of our very first, and at the time, as Dr. Borovitz may have mentioned, was, for lack of a better description, a young child on an adult device. There really weren't any pediatric devices available, so he more or less forged a path uh, more than just support and some of the things in his recovery and his ability to leave the hospital uh, was quite unique. You seem to recall seeing some literature in terms of the Novacore that supported Brian and the amount of support apparatus it took at that time to make that device run properly. And I I know I've seen pictures that Dr. Borovitz has of the first implant with Mr. Gatos that the support equipment was, I can roughly describe it, about the size of a washing machine. Perhaps Dr. Borovitz or Mr. Winowich could briefly describe the evolution of this technology that began in 1985 and, of course, helped Brian and now helps many more patients that Steve Winowich just introduced. Uh, I know that the technology has improved in terms of the pumps and the, the support equipment has drastically reduced in size. Dr. Borowitz, can you give us just a brief synopsis, please? Briefly, 
the Jarvacart and the Novocor left ventricular assist system and so-called HeartMate 1 from Thermocardio Systems and the first Oratech pumps. These pumps all functioned in a fashion similar to the native heart in that you produce a pulse, you, you have blood pumping into a sac, filling the sac or filling the native heart at some predetermined rate and interval, the heart empties or the sac empties. And by repeating that process, you produce a pulse. And so these devices were all called pulsatile assist devices. If you took the pulse of a patient with one of these devices, you would actually measure a pulse. These devices were intuitive in terms of they mimic the native heart, they mimic the principles of operation of a native heart. And in the case of the Novocore device, extremely reliable. There are patients, I think, who still have the Novocore device who've had it for six years. And it was one of the strengths of that device. It's a mechanical reliability. A drawback to these devices were that they were very large. And by being very large, they basically excluded half of the population in terms of women. And also they excluded children. So it was really the National Institutes of Health and Dr. John Watson, who in 1992 issued a, what's called a request for proposals for funding, and the title of the RFP was Innovative Ventricular Assist Systems, or IVAS. And the goal of the NIH contract was to develop the next generation of mechanical blood pumps. And these mechanical blood pumps were to not exclude all the women in the population, but be of a size that women could actually benefit from the technology. And as a result, this led really to the development of an entire new industry called rotary blood pump technology. And it was out of this RFP, this funding that the NIH provided to a handful of consortia in the University of Pittsburgh in concert with a company called Nimbus, located in Rancho Cordova, California, were one of the awardees, and the work we initiated in the mid-1990s led to the pump known as the HeartMate 2, which is basically the size of a D-cell battery and is now one of the most popular of the pumps that's being utilized, both at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, across the United States, and worldwide, actually. So it was through federal funding that an entirely new industry was created and established called the rotary blood pumps, and these pumps were not available for Brian. Subsequent to that, in 2002, the National Institutes of Health again realized that there were still inadequate blood pumping technology available for children and issued yet another RFP called Pediatric Circulatory Support. And we formed a consortium, we, meaning the McGowan Institute, University of Pittsburgh, Department of Bioengineering, formed a consortium with several organizations, including World Heart Corporation, which is the name of the company that was originally Novacor, which was the device that supported Brian for those 120 days. And we were one of five contractors to be awarded funding to develop pumps for children. And the pump that we're working on now is approximating the size of a double cell battery. So what's happened over time is an evolution, if you will, 
from a device that was only suitable for people of, of my size or Professor Murphy's size, really, to now technology that's even going to be suitable for infants born with congenital cardiac defects. So that's one aspect of the evolution of the technology. So I'll be happy to go back to Mr. Winowich, who had to help Brian deal with technology that was too large for him, mm-hmm. and yet try to maintain a very active lifestyle at family house, uh, enjoy his family, and be able to move about and try to live a halfway normal life. As Dr. Borovitz said, uh, the technologies you know, have advanced quite a bit over those years since Brian was supported. And when Brian was supported, the task of getting him and others like him out of the hospital was great. As we spoke before, the drivers for these pumps were roughly the size of a washing machine and that they needed uninterrupted power and they had a short battery life. You know, any small glitch in power or or the pumping could be life-threatening to the patient. So moving patients outside away from the hospital came with a lot of different activities, getting in and out of an ambulance and, and thinking about elevators and anti-static carpet when you push these devices around was something big to consider. At the time, at least at the time we began using mechanical pumps back in the 80s, the average wait for donor organ was roughly two weeks, three weeks. And at the outset of a program like this, patients very rarely left the intensive care unit. As the competition for organs became more and more lengthy or great, the support times lengthened, and patients like Brian actually stretched the limits where we not only moved them out of the intensive care unit and down to a step-down ward, they began working out and getting more and more aggressive in rehab and physical therapy. I recall seeing Brian ride the stationary bicycle for, what, 45 minutes, Brian, possibly longer, Mm -hmm. and really testing the limits of, of what a pump could provide in terms of mechanical circulatory support. And, you know, in thinking about getting patients out of the hospital, I think it was Dr. Griffith who, after possibly some unsuccessful attempts, had visitors from the FDA come and actually lay their eyes on Brian to see the types of things that he was doing inside the four walls that the hospital provided and how, you know, as stable as he was and physically capable as he was, that it was really, you know, not worth keeping him here. And I think, you know, some of those experiences really forced our manufacturers, those on industry side, to develop the peripheral systems in addition to the pumps, but the peripheral systems, the batteries, the cables, the things externally that would promote a better quality of life in the outpatient setting. Now where Brian's battery lasted uh, approximately 30 to 45 minutes, we have battery sets that are the size of an iPod that are enabling patients to be on battery for approximately 12 to 14 hours, depending upon speed. The exit site, the exit wound that connects the external components to the internal pump used to be uh, almost the diameter of, say, a, a nickel, and now they're just millimeters thick. The controllers have shrunk from hundreds and hundreds of pounds to roughly one pound. So getting a patient outside the hospital now they can carry all of their components and spare components in a little backpack, whereas in the past, to take components and spare components would take roughly two ambulances and maybe five or six trained people. 
when that's a big difference. Uh, the simplicity, now patients and their family members are trained to take care of the components themselves. They understand the systems. They're as reliable, and they've always been relatively reliable, but they've really now been designed for patients' families to manage both the general day-to-day care and the emergency situations that could arise. So this is really an incredible story of, first of all, patients like Brian who have uh, contributed to the advancement of this science, but also to the engineering and clinical specialists who have worked in their respective areas but worked together to make the progress that uh, you just summarized. So, Brian, uh, I know you have some other insights in terms of the 121 days you spent on the Novacor. Perhaps you could share those with us? Sure. If you go back from the point when I woke up in the ICU on the Novacor for the first time, as I said before, I'd lost about 60 pounds, was tremendously weak, really could not stand up. After doing the Novacor surgery, the surgeons had to go back and do additional surgeries in the days following the Novacor implant because initially I was not recovering fast enough. So in other words, I needed more support for my heart than the Novacor could provide. That was temporary support. From my perspective, starting at zero or even, you know, to the negative, And with the help, obviously, first and foremost, family. My mother flew to Pittsburgh with me and was by my side each and every day for the entire six months. Obviously, my father, my brother, aunts, uncles, friends visited a lot. But I think probably the most important thing that helped me was the engineers. And back then, there had to be an engineer with me at all times. So four months, really, that I was in the hospital before leaving for family house. And in that four months' time, as both Steve and Dr. Borovitz have mentioned, I started at zero and really was just, just able to breathe through physical therapy, through their help, their counsel, their challenging me to do whatever I felt like I could do and to push the limits, walking down the hallways, eventually running down the hallways, eventually pushing the washing machine-sized pump, other than the fact that my heart needed support a perfectly healthy individual heading into transplant, which made my heart transplant so much more successful when that day came. So it's, again, a great example of people working together and a very committed patient who made some incredible achievements that you're to be commended for. So, Dr. Borovitz, I know you have some personal observations in terms of Brian's recovery and the progress when he was on the heart pump. Could you uh, share some of those with us, please? I just want to add the humorous story that I remember and that we celebrated recently Brian's 35th birthday. And, and how we do the celebration in today's world is we exchange emails. And one of the persons who joined us in the email exchange was Dr. Rob Labity who was one of the engineers that helped support Brian and and became such good friends with Brian. And we were reminiscing what happened the day at the family house that Brian got the call from Dr. Armitage that a, a donor organ had become available and it was time to go back to the hospital. And so you, you have to keep in mind that you're dealing with somebody by this point who is absolutely as healthy as any other 15-year-old kid. The only aspect of Brian that wasn't as healthy at that point was that his heart was still in failure, but the heart support had been taken up 
beautifully by the Novacor pump. And so the call comes that it's time for Brian to go back to the hospital. So the protocol that we had at the time was that we had to call the ambulance from Presbyterian Hospital, and they had to come to Family House, which was all of a two-minute drive, and Brian had to go into the ambulance and be driven back to the hospital. So we wait for the ambulance to come, and we're all very excited. And I can't remember why I happened to be at Family House that day. And so the, the ambulance pulls up, and the doors open. Meanwhile, I go over to talk to the ambulance driver, and, and Brian goes running over to the ambulance and literally jumps into the ambulance. And the driver's looking at me says, where's the patient? And I point to Brian, who's literally jumping into the ambulance. And I thought for sure we were going to need a left ventricular assist device for the ambulance driver. I never, I never saw such an expression. Brian, I don't know if you ever knew that story. Yeah. Yes, Steve, Steve told me, for sure. It was, yeah. it's just, I, just and I remember to this day. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, there's a picture, Professor Murphy, of Brian and myself and Rob Labadee and, and I think uh, Steve or John Pristis all in the ambulance at the same time. And if you didn't know that Brian had a ventricular assist device and you said, who is the patient here, you would have no idea. Dr. Borovitz, I, I appreciate you sharing insights with us as we conclude this podcast relative to uh, both the technology and the people involved. I think the story is really not about technology. It's about people and mm-hmm. very special people, whether mm-hmm. it was Mr. Gatish and his wonderful family in 1985 or or Brian and his wonderful family in 1990. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about the people who have the strength to deal with this incredibly terrible disease. And yet, you talk to Brian today, and it's so cheerful and tells funny stories. There's just something very special about these people. But it's truly, at the end of the day, Professor Murphy, that's what the story is all about. Technology will be better, smaller, more reliable, uh, do wonderful things with with experts like Dr. Antaki inventing things. But it's always about the people, and that's what makes this all very special. Reflecting on the comments that Dr. Borvich just made about advancements in technology and commitments of people, both as patients and well as the technical teams that make these things happen, uh, I'd like to say thanks to our guests who have shared their experiences and the advancements that have been made in this incredibly important area. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions. Uh, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd also like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors these podcast series. Until we meet again, uh, thanks to our guests and best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you.